Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to The Corbett Report. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and you are tuned into Questions for Corbett. And this week, we're going to answer a number of questions that have come in over the months and years that I've been doing The Corbett Report that often come in different flavors and varieties, but swirl around broadly the same topic. Let's take a couple of examples from the mailbox. One from Oren, who wrote, I greatly appreciate all of your insight and sanity into our current times. One thing that I've been challenged to reconcile in my mind is the population question. I know that you have said that it is a myth that the world is overpopulated. I'm having trouble understanding this in the current context. Can you either point me to existing resources or address this question? Thank you. Or, for example, a, I think, related question, if not uh, intentionally or consciously so, but I think related question from Eric, who wrote, I've followed your work for years, but have never sent anything your way. This website this website is not one I would ever recommend as reputable, therefore I doubt it is one in your normal feed. However, this article tipped off all my WTF hairs and made me wonder how far this study can be traced. And he includes a link to MIT predicted in 1972 that society will collapse this century. New research shows we're on schedule. Da, da, da. And this is coming from Vice dot com, which if you saw my recent edition of Solutions Watch, you will know, yes, I do not consider this a reputable news source either, and it is not part of my daily normal feed. But it is good to know what the propagandists are attempting to shove down the public's throat and in what way they are attempting to do so. So reading from the introduction to that particular linked vice.com report, which of course I will link up in the show notes on the archive.is version, so you do not give vice any of your traffic. Uh, It starts by noting, A remarkable new study by a director at one of the largest accounting firms in the world has found that a famous decades-old warning from MIT about the risk of industrial civilization collapsing appears to be accurate based on new empirical data. As the world looks forward to a rebound in economic growth following the devastation wrought by the pandemic, the research raises urgent questions about the risks of attempting to simply return to the pre-pandemic normal. In 1972, a team of MIT scientists got together to study the risks of civilizational collapse. Their systems dynamic, system dynamics model, published by the Club of Rome, identified impending limits to growth, LTG. That meant industrial civilization was on track to collapse sometime within the 21st century due to over-exploitation of planetary resources. The controversial MIT analysis generated heated debate and was widely derided at the time by pundits who misrepresented its findings and methods. But the analysis has now received stunning vindication from a study written by a senior director at professional services giant KPMG, (laughs) one of the big four accounting firms, (laughs) as measured by global revenue. All right, uh, you can continue reading that Vice article if you want, but I think we get the bare bones of the basis of the idea of this stunning new report that's actually several months old. (laughs) Um, But anyway, wow. Okay, so this is all about the Club of Rome and the limits to growth and the MIT team that was creating a report for them that was talking about how industrial society is going to collapse, and there's a new report saying how this is all on track. And, of course, this does swirl around that initial question raised by Oren about overpopulation. Isn't overpopulation this pressing problem that is facing humanity? So in order to start answering the Pandora's box of questions that this these individual questions opens, let's start by refamiliarizing ourselves with, with the limits to growth. 
um, which was released as a book in 1972 that became an international bestseller and I believe tens of millions of copies sold and translated into many languages. Um, that was itself based on a report that was delivered to the Club of Rome by a prestigious team of researchers from the prestigious Ivy League institution of MIT, which does have a lot of U.S. deep state connections, I'm sure. Uh, you would understand that if you are a regular of the corporate report, but... Anyway, there is that cookie crumb trail to follow. But anyway, this MIT team of researchers had this world computer model that they used as the basis for delivering their report, which was then summarized in book form by the Club of Rome in their publication, The Limits to Growth. And of course, I'll put in the link to the actual PDF version of The Limits to Growth itself. And I will also direct you to the Club of Rome uh, official write-up on the Limits to Growth and its significance, where they say, in the summer of 1970, an international team of researchers at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology began a study of the implications of continued worldwide growth. They examined the five basic factors that determine and, in their interactions, ultimately limit growth on this planet. Population increase, agricultural production, non-renewable resource depletion, industrial output, and pollution generation. The MIT team fed data on these five factors into a global computer model and then tested the behavior of the model under several sets of assumptions to uh, determine alternative patterns for mankind's future. The Limits to Growth is the non-technical report of their findings. The book contains a message of hope as well. Man can create a society in which he can live ind indefinitely on Earth if he imposes limits on himself and his production of material goods to achieve a state of global equilibrium with population and production in carefully selected balance. Now, I'm sure my more astute and informed listeners will already understand what this report is really saying, what it is aiming at, what solutions it is going to ultimately propose to this problem of the growing human population. Not only population control, of course, that is always there as one of the key solutions, but also it implies, of course, there will be selected limits to certain resources and our ability to use them, material production. We will have to impose controls, not just control on the growth of the human population, but control on what the human population does, where it goes, how it uses resources, what it can and cannot consume. And it's a carefully selected balance. Hmm, I wonder who's going to be selecting that balance for us. I sure hope it's the wise technocratic overlords at institutions like MIT and, more importantly, the Club of Rome. All right, the Club of Rome itself is an important institution that I have referred to in the past, founded in 1968 in Italy, and co-founders included Aurelio Pache, who, of course, you will remember from the recent presentation on the World Economic Forum, Meet the World Economic Forum, you will remember that Aurelio Pache was one of the key speakers at one of the first uh, Davos conferences, where he delivered a keynote address at the same conference where the Davos Manifesto was being laid out. Uh, an interesting tidbit that you can check back in the archives for more on that. Of course, I'll include the link. But having said that, uh, the Club of Rome itself is an interesting institution. But let's look more closely at this particular report. And more importantly, the totally scientific 
um, basis for that report, which was put together by the technical experts at MIT with their highly scientific computer model that had precisely technical and detailed findings that exactly laid out where the human population and where the state of the world itself was going. <laughs> Did I mention science? <laughs> Let's take a little look more closely at the science supposedly underlying the limits to growth, and we'll do so by way of an interesting little time capsule that surfaced on YouTube in the last few years, courtesy of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, which had a 1973 report detailing the computer model uh, behind the limits to growth. But more importantly, I think, the, th the thrust of the report was an interview that included uh, Club of Rome co-founders co Aurelio Pache and Alexander King. It's not some science fantasy effect from 2001. This electronic display emanating from Australia's largest computer is a picture of the condition past, present and future of planet Earth. The program was originally devised by a scientist working from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, Jay Forrester. It was developed under the auspices of the Club of Rome by an MIT research team to present a complex model of the world and what we humans are doing to it. The program, called World One, doesn't pretend to be a precise forecast. What it does for the first time in man's history on the planet is to look at the world as one system. It shows that Earth cannot sustain present population and industrial growth for much more than a few decades. It shows that simply cleaning up our car exhausts and making some small effort to limit our families simply isn't enough. the stuff. Woo! I love science! Woo! Hey! Hey, ABC, you got any more of that, that awesome computer modeling stuff, you know, with all the letters and characters and stuff floating around the screen like the Matrix? You got any more of that? No? Well, how about, uh, how about misleading rhetoric and empty characterizations and stealth editorialization? You got any of that? This is the printed version of what we've just seen on the television screen. And what looks at first to be just a maze of computer characteristics is really a system of very simple graphs which project what's going to happen to the planet over the next 150 years if we don't do something drastic to stop it. Yes, note a couple of things about that little passage, one of which is the presenter's little tell there, 150 years, even he doesn't believe what he's saying. Oh yes, this computer graph, these characters on this page represent what is going to happen to the planet over the next 150 years. Yeah, sure, we know what the world's going to look like in the year 2120 or whatever it was at the time that this report was filed. <laughs> sure. But more importantly, of course, unless we do something drastic to stop it. The, the, the conclusion is already baked into the cake that there is an implied value judgment about things that we should or should not be doing in order to achieve certain goals. What goals? Who are setting these goals? What goals are they for the planet? But beyond that, that there is such uh, certainty about this hard-hitting data. Look, look at the characters printed on this piece of paper. See? It shows that we have to do something drastic to stop this from happening. So it's Please note that your entire, the, the viewer's entire spectrum of allowable thought on this subject has been drastically narrowed down to a point by this 
objective news presenter who's just presenting us news, right? Uh, wrong, of course. And then uh, the report goes on to talk to Alexander King and Aurelio Pache and, uh, and another person associated with the Club of Rome about their predictions. And the question is posed to Alexander King, a, a very specific question. Let's, let's listen to this news presenter presenting this hard-hitting question to this incredibly important figure. Dr. King, now you're describing the world as a closed system where all these things are interrelated, and yet the government, the control of the system is by individual nation-states. Now, how do you convince them to cooperate? How do you convince them to cooperate? How do you convince them to cooperate? (laughs) I'll just put this out as a rhetorical question. Please answer it for yourself in your own way, but... Is this a journalistic question? Is this a question that a journalist would be asking to someone in a position of power and influence about an agenda that they are attempting to promote? How would you convince them to cooperate with your agenda, (laughs) despite the fact there is presumably massive resistance and pushback against that agenda, as implied by the question itself? (laughs) But no, don't ask about that. Don't push back on this person and the agenda that they're attempting to promote. No, lob them the easiest softball imaginable so that they can have an open platform without pushback, without any sort of question, to simply promote what they are attempting to push. That is not journalism, but it gets even worse. I'm sure you'll never be able to guess what Dr. the esteemed Dr. Alexander King's answer to that question might be. So I don't think one can envisage an idealistic of jumping to a world federalism or anything of that sort. But the building up probably in the next uh, decade in a number of uh, particularly sensitive fields like energy, raw materials, uh, the use of the oceans, space and so on, of a number of uh, what people are tending to call regimes, which will not be ordinary United Nations type of organizations, but semi-management organizations. There'd be a great deal of consent in them. Semi-management organizations. Hmm. That some people will call regimes, sort of mini United Nations, but with actual teeth to them. Hmm. Oh, I think there is a word for that. Technocracy. Yes, of course, technocracy. And in fact, if you watch this full report, you will see that at many different instances, it aligns very well with what is being promoted and pushed today by the World Economic Forum, which, as I have repeatedly stressed, is not the be-all and end-all. It is just the latest packaging on a very old agenda that is being pushed and has been pushed demonstrably so for at least half a century, going back to the Club of Rome and its 1972 report on limits to growth. It was talking about, they were talking about all of these same concepts 50 years ago, whether that be stakeholder capitalism, although they didn't refer to it as such, they are explicitly referring to the concept behind that in this interview, and how everything will be, don't worry, there will be broad consent to these mini-regimes that will be placed over the stewarding of various resources, so you can trust in these wonderful technocrats. You will trust in these wonderful technocrats to decide for you and your family, right? And uh, guess how this report ends? 
to the Club of Rome, the status symbols of the year 2000 will be the inverse of today's. Prestige will stem from low consumption. That personal consumption will have to be less is plain enough, but for that privation to be seen as prestigious would seem to indicate some radical rethinking, at least for the fat cats of the planet. Yeah, so let me get this straight. The, the ABC is trying to convince the public that the fat cats behind the Club of Rome, the Alexander Kings and Aurelio Paches, are the good fat cats that are trying to convince those other evil fat cats to go along with the idea that privation is going to be prestigious. Make feudalism great again, guys. It'll be so great when you're scrabbling to eke out some meager subsistence living from the dirt like your great-great-great-great-grandparents, won't it be great when we can institute that again? And you will, of course, be ruled over by the very fat cats of the Club of Rome and their ilk, but let's not delve too deeply into that side of the equation, right, ABC? So that was the type of propaganda that the public was being subjected to as this was first being rolled out in the 1970s, plus a change. And, of course, this was when all of this uh, uh, redu reduction to zero, the zero carbon, which is becoming absolute zero, and the other types of ideas that are being rolled out that is the culmination of this very Malthusian ideology is starting to reach its crescendo now, 50 years later. Well, it was just a twinkle in their eye way back when. They had to sell it to the public pretty hard. So, as you can imagine, the Club of Rome and the limits to growth did not enter into the public discourse without a bit of pushback. There was, there were a lot of people saying, what's going on here? What is this really about? Is this really science? Should we trust the science? And well, if you really want to get into that back and forth, there has now been 50 years of it to familiarize yourself with. So I will just introduce you to some of the, the main treatises that have been written on this over the decades. Um, you can start by going back to not just the Limits to Growth book, which obviously I'll link it up in the show notes so that you can go and see that for yourself, but also Dynamics of Growth in a Finite World, which was the 600-plus page technical report of the World 3 model that was as you know, was the basis for that Limits to Growth report, but they didn't finish the actual technical report of that model until after they published the summary of the report. Hey, it kind of reminds me of the summary for policymakers with the IPCC. But anyway, you can actually read the actual technical report itself. And then you can read Models of Doom, a critique of the Limits to Growth, published in the UK as Thinking About the Future, a Critique of the Limits to Growth, which was a 1973 critique of the World 3 model, actually released sl slightly before the final technical report had been released. Some details had already been released. But that was released by an interdisciplinary team of researchers at Sussex University's Science Policy Research Unit. Take that, MIT. Well, we have credentialed people who can argue against your credentialed people, so I guess it just cancels each other out, matter and antimatter, right? Of course, the MIT team did respond to that critique with a response to Sussex, which you can then read. Um, you could read the Global 2000 report to the president, in that case, President Carter, that was issued in 1980, um, which was not directly related to the Club of Rome or Limits to Growth, but was definitely in that same ilk, and which was warning that by the year 2000, the environment will have lost important life-supporting capabilities. So... Pack it in, guys. It's all, it was done 20 years ago, 21 years ago. There's 
There's nothing we could do now, right? Um, you could, of course, also read the response to Global 2000 called The Resourceful Earth by Herman Kahn and Julian Simon, more on whom later. You could then read Revisiting the Limits to Growth, Could the Club of Rome Have Been Correct After All, which was a 2000 essay by peak oiler Matthew R. Simmons, so you might imagine the thrust of his argument. And then you can read the third update to the World 3 model original Limits to Growth tech, uh, report, Limits to Growth, the 30-year update, which was uh, presented at a 2004 symposium on the 30th anniversary of the report. Well, the report came out in 73, so I guess it was the 30th anniversary of the World 3 technical report. Anyway, some 30th anniversary in 2004, they had the 30-year update, which was the uh, latest of the updates of that model, and saying, we were right, we were right all along, guys. Hell in a handbasket. Uh, you could then read a 2008 article, uh, A Comparison of the Limits to Growth with 30 Years of Reality, published in the Journal of Global Environmental Change. You'll never guess what they conclude. Um, you could read a, a very interesting article from the American Scientist uh, from the May-June 2012 edition, Computation and the Human Predicament, the Limits to Growth and the Limits to Computer Modeling. Um, definitely worth your time. I think it's an interesting read there, and it does go into some of the technical details about the World 3 model. Um, remember MIT, MIT's Club of Rome report by Robert Bradley Jr., which was published over at masterresource.org in 2018. Uh, even just a couple of months ago, back in June, the Financial Post had Clubs, Clubs of Doom and the Limits to Models talking again about the Club of Rome and Limits to Growth. And and it goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Entire books, as I'm pointing out here, entire books have been written about the limits to growth and critiques of it and defenses of it. And there's, an, there's a, a small publishing industry that's been created around the various critiques and responses to the limits to growth. And I have only just scratched the surface. I did a lot of reading in preparation for this presentation, and I have only just scratched the surface of the literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pages that have been written about this. Here, in an attempt to just make some sort of um, idea of the scale of this debate known and what sorts of things were being talked about, I'll just read a couple of examples. One, again, from that Computation and the Human Predicament article from the American Scientist in 2012, um, which is worth reading in its entirety. It does get, as I say, into some of the technical details, but it does say, as for the mathematical model behind the book, I believe it is more a polemical tool than a scientific instrument. Forrester and the Limits Group have frequently said that the graphs drawn by their computer programs should not be taken as predictions of the future, but only as indicating dynamic tendencies or behavior modes. But despite these disclaimers, Limits is full of blunt statements about the future. If the present growth trends continue unchanged, the limits to growth on this planet will be reached sometime in the next 100 years. And whether the models are supposed to be predictive or not, they are offered as an explicit guide to public policy. For example, in testimony before a congressional committee of the, in the 1970s, Forrester, who was one of the lead people behind this model, recommended curtailing investment in industrialization and food production as a way of slowing population growth. Read that again. I, again, this needs to be read to be believed. In the 1970s, Forrester recommended to a congressional committee to curtail not just investment in industrialization, which is crazy enough, but investment in food production so that we can slow population growth. If you are not thinking 
Malthus right now, you are not thinking right. But just to underline that point, we could turn to another example from the very voluminous literature of critique of the limits to growth. Um, the introductory essay to that aforementioned thinking about the future, a critique of the limits of, to growth from that University of Sussex team, the introductory essay to that volume was called Malthus In, Malthus Out, and it was penned by Christopher Freeman. And he wrote um, in some detail about that idea that is an old adage now in the world of computer modeling, garbage in, garbage out. I'm sure you've heard it before. If you put garbage into this model, you're going to get garbage out. It doesn't matter how intricately and beautifully constructed the model is. And there's plenty to say about the choices that they make about the, the various model parameters. But again, it's what data do you put in? What do you get out? Well, how about if you put Malthus in? You're going to get Malthus out. And in that essay, Freeman notes, the assumptions and judgments made by the computer model modelers depend no less than those of other social scientists on their mental models, on their information, their bias, their experience, their capacity, and their values. Consequently, although it would be quite wrong to talk of garbage in the MIT model, there is a real point in the description, Malthus in, Malthus out. In fact, as we shall see, the MIT model is not strictly Malthusian. Many assumptions are made which have little to do with that country parson. But the expression Malthus in, Malthus out does bring out the essential point that what is on the computer printout depends on the assumptions which are made about real-world relationships. And these assumptions, in turn, are heavily influenced by those contemporary social theories and values to which the computer modelers are exposed. Therefore, the critique of a computer model is not just a question of looking at the structure or conducting mathematical tests. Far more important is the examination of the underlying assumptions. That is the reason for this chapter's title. It is also the reason for devoting the second part of this critique to a discussion of the ideological background to the distinctive MIT approach to world forecasting. This may reasonably and precisely be described as a neo-Malthusian approach. The MIT work is the most numerate, influential, and clearly formulated statement of this position. Because of the prestige of the computer and of MIT, it's also frequently cited in other doomsday literature as an authoritative source for views, which otherwise might be dif rather difficult to justify. Thus, for example, the ecologist Blueprint for Survival cites Forrester's work as justification for the view that economic growth in Britain must cease and the population decline to 30 million, which to put it in perspective from today's numbers would be over half of the population of Britain would have to disappear somehow to satisfy these Neo-Malthusians. Oh, it's the data, the science, the model tells us that tens of millions of people in Britain, let alone however many billions around the world, will somehow or other have to disappear for Mother Mother Earth and Mother Nature to be protected. Look, our model says it. You can't argue with the model, can you? Well, you certainly can't even begin to argue with the model until you actually have studied the model and gone into it and learnt about the different assumptions that are embedded in there and looked at the complex mathematics that they're using and what those relationships mean. And uh, that's why I suggest, for example, that the American Scientist um, article is one inroad into that. As I say, he gets into some of the technical details that are certainly over my head as a non-computer modeler. But he points out some of the assumptions that have to be made about, for example, when you're talking about all oh, these four factors are all uh, computed together to come up with some score for, say, health in the future environment in any given country. Well, are those four variables additive or multiplicative? 
Because if they're additive and one of those factors goes down to zero, like pollution or whatever it is, then that's simply going to be essentially a non-variable. It's going to disappear from the equation and you figure it out the rest. If it's multiplicative and one of those variables go to zero, then the whole thing goes to zero, right? And, and, that's, and that's one of those things where he points out in that essay, it's not like there's a right or wrong way of doing this per se. It's just choices and assumptions and you have to do it one way or another. And which one is going to be more or less wrong? Is this an accurate description of the world? How do you make those decisions? And that's just one decision in a chain of decisions that add up to this entire model of the future of the world for the next 150 years. Yeah, there are some serious problems with the idea that this is scientific in any meaningful sense. But lo and behold, we don't have to worry about it anymore because now we have, quote, startling, quote, new, quote, scientific research that, quote, totally confirms all of Limits to Growth's fear-mongering. A 1972 study out of MIT predicted that society will collapse within the 21st century. And a new analysis of that study shows us that we are right on schedule. Now, this new analysis looked at data across 10 key variables to arrive at this conclusion, including population, fertility rates, mortality rates, industrial output, food production, services, non-renewable resources, persistent pollution, human welfare, and ecological footprint. Now, it's important to note here that this does not mean that humanity itself will all die. What this does mean is that essentially capitalism will collapse. So more on this from uh, the study. Study author Gaia Harrington told Motherboard that the MIT World 3 model's collapse does not mean that humanity will cease to exist, but rather that economic and industrial growth will stop and then decline, which will hurt food production and standards of living. In terms of timing, the BAU2 scenario shows a steep decline to set in around 2040. All right. So there you have it. I guess there's some new study that confirms the Limits to Growth report and says we're right on track for its worst case scenario predictions of industrial society collapsing or civilization collapsing in 2040. Wow. And you can go and look at all the headlines that that generated and the commentary and people regurgitating this from the Vice article that seems to be the the font of it all, because this study was released back in December, but it wasn't at all pointed out by anybody, noticed by anybody whatsoever until the Vice article in June. And then suddenly all the media is reporting it and just taking that headline, civilization collapsed by 2040. The Club of Rome was right. And unfortunately, I know if, if you're like most people, you're going to read those headlines, you might take a look at sort of the synopsis of, oh, sh this scientist question mark, looked at all these different variables and crunched the numbers and found that it's exactly right and we're right on track and kind of use that as your basis for understanding what this is about and what this might mean for the future. But no, no, do not take this at face value. Do not simply take the characterizations of the vice.com article writer about what this study is, what it says, what it, what it finds, because I, I, I have read it, and I can tell you, even without specialist training, or even without actually downloading the, the World 3 model yourself and tinkering it with, with it yourself, which, if there are any people in the audience who are capable and inclined to do so, I very much would appreciate hearing about that experience. But um, even just looking at this study itself, I think you will see, as we will see, there are some serious problems with taking any of this at face value, as if this is telling us anything about the actual 
real world and what is really happening. So let's roll up our sleeves, shall we? Let's take a look. Update to Limits to Growth, Comparing the World 3 Model with Empirical Data by Gaia Harrington. And there's some preamble about the limits to growth and what it is and blah, blah, blah. And it goes on to talk about how the fact in the original study, there were several different scenarios that they used as their uh, model runs, essentially. So they assumed this and did a model run and they assumed that and did a model run. And depending on what they assume and what what characteristics, how things are going to evolve over time, their guesses, well, it might be, be like this, it might be like that. So, for example, it says... Um, that one of the main scenarios that they used was the quote-unquote business-as-usual scenario, BAU. And BAU showed a halt in the hitherto continuous increase in welfare indicators around the present day, i.e. around 2020, and a sharp decline starting around 2030. So that was the business-as-usual scenario that was baked into the cake in the original Limits to Growth study back in 1972. And then they talked about there There were 11 other scenarios in the first book, including Comprehensive Technology, CT, and Stabilized World, SW. CT assumes a range of technological solutions, including reductions in pollution generation, increases in agricultural land yields, and resource efficiency improvements that are significantly above historic averages. The SW, Stabilized World, scenario assumes that in addition to the technological solutions, global societal priorities changed from a certain year onwards. A change in values and policies translates into, amongst other things, low desired family size, perfect birth control availability, and a deliberate choice to limit industrial output and prioritize health and education services. Stabilized World, SW, was the only scenario in which declines were avoided. So the only way that the limits to growth, the original study, foresaw that we could possibly prevent this complete collapse that's coming, whether that comes in the 2030s or in 2040 or sometime thereafter, it's coming unless we stabilize the world with low desired family size, perfect birth control availability, deliberate choice to limit industrial output, prioritize health and education services. So it's, again, baked into the cake exactly the types of ideology that they're trying to promote. And lo and behold, what they find is the only way to do, uh, avoid this crisis. All right, it, here's where it starts to get interesting in section 1.5 here. They talk about um, one of the original studies, the uh, Limits to Growth authors, Randers, who did admit that non-renewable resources, this was in 2000, he admitted that non-renewable resources, particularly fossil fuels, had turned out to be more plentiful than assumed in the 1972 business-as-usual scenario. He therefore postulated that not resource scarcity, but pollution, especially from greenhouse gases, would cause the halt in growth. And this aligns with the second scenario in the LTG books. This scenario has the same assumptions as the business-as-usual scenario, except that it assumes double the amount of non-renewable resources. So I, the study author here, refers to this scenario as BAU2, business as usual 2. Okay, don't gloss over that. That is extremely important. It's incredible what is blithely admitted here. And you might need to reread that for it to sink in. But long story short, yes, one of the original authors revisited the information back in 2000 to see, is it holding up? And discovered, you know what? After 30 years, it turns out what we assumed was the total natural resources of the Earth that we're using these various proxy data for 
turned out to be a little bit short. How short? Well, let's double it, <laughs> and then we're we're almost there. So somehow in 30 years, instead of this horrible resource depletion, which was the original scare, limits to growth, the, the limit was the natural resources that we're running out of. That was the that was the fundamental part of the argument back in the 1970s. They discovered actually over those 30 years we didn't just lose resources, we actually doubled them. We have double the amount that we thought we had in 1972, which might make one stop to wonder, how does that happen? How does that happen? How do we double the amount of resource? Oops, we were wrong. We have way more resources than we thought we did. <laughs> so just right there, that is alarming in and of itself. But then, they, as again, as, as she blindly admits, he, Randers, therefore postulated that not resource scarcity, but pollution, especially from greenhouse gases, would cause the halt in growth. So their entire, the basis of their argument, the limits to growth, because we're running out of resources Actually, we have way more resources than we thought. Okay, it's not about resources. It's about uh, pollution, uh, greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide. That's what it's about, guys. That will cause us to halt growth in the future. That's the limit to our growth now. Okay, whatever. Anyway, let's run it again. And this time, we'll do the same business as usual scenario, but we'll start with double the amount of resources. And that'll take care of it, right? Right? A, a huge huge part of the puzzle right there, which shows you, again, this is not, this is not the be-all and end-all, the science, the science, you know, this is it. This is telling us exactly what's going to happen and giving us the timeline and exactly how it's going to work. It really isn't. So if you look, for example, at the graphs of these different scenarios, business as usual, which you'll note starts with resources at here, and of course they start to dwindle in the 2000s, and by the time of uh, 2030, in that range, it's definitely getting low. It hits into deer in 2050 and inches back up a little in 2100. But then, well, oh, oops, we were totally wrong about where our resources started. So let's double them <laughs> and we'll show essentially the same type of decline. It's just that actually at this point in the 2020s, we're we're far, far above where the entire total resources that were estimated in 1972, we're way above that point still. <laughs> but don't worry, trust us this time, it's still going to go down on that downward slope. We're not going to explain how we were so completely, terribly, unbelievably, by a factor of 100% off on our initial estimate of the resources, and we won't re-examine it now that it's been another 20 years, right? We'll just start with double the amount of resources and assume essentially the same type of trend. Well, we know. Again, anyways, we know that it's going down like this. So, whatever, good enough. And now it's not, see, pollution was just like this back in the original business as usual. Now it's a huge, big, oh my god, hockey stick pollution, ah, which is going to cause industrial output to start to decline. Anyway, so you see, you can see, uh, oh, let's just add a new scenario run and we'll call it business as usual too. And it'll basically play out similarly to the original one, at least in terms of where we start to see declines and what kind of declines. But it's sort of different because we had to double resources. So again, as I say, that just gives you a sense of what's going on here, the types of games that are being played, but it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So it goes on to talk about the way that this study actually determined the accuracy of the original limits to growth scenarios. And uh, she said, I used the same two measures as in Turner 2008, this paper. The combination of the value difference between the model output and empirical data and the difference between the model output and empirical data in rate of change, ROC, and 
factor two, the normalized root mean square difference, the NRMSD. These two measures do not provide the level of precision of some statistical tests. They are, when combined with visual inspection, visual inspection of these types of graphs that get produced by the model. Keep that in mind. <laughs> Again, what is it telling us about the real world? It's telling us about the model itself. And given World 3's global scope and aggregation, appropriate measures for the scenario's accuracy. Appropriate measures for the scenario's accuracy. Precision does not always correspond to accuracy. The precision of linear regression and other econo ec econometric methods are based on assumptions of constancy, like linearity, homoscedasticity, or normality, which cannot be assumed outside controlled experiments or other unusually stable environments. As such, they are inadequate for analyzing the dynamics of a system like our society. The accuracy measures are useful to determine World 3's merit, not for point predictions, but as an analysis tool for general global dynamics. So again, again admitting, it's not like we're getting actual data here about, oh, it's going to be at this level at this time. It's just we see a general trend. We see some sort of slope and it, the slope starts to increase here, or it starts to go up there. And that's what we can tell. But notice it's a modern Bailey argument, because it, it, when pressed, they will retreat to this. Oh, well, actually, all we really know is sort of general global dynamic trends. But of course, how does it then get presented to the public? Civilizational collapse by 2040. We're on track, guys. <laughs> Again, way overstating it. And it gets into some of the actual um, statistics that they're using here and how they're calculating them. Uh, it, the uncertainty ranges blows my mind. It was necessary to establish suitable uncertainty ranges for each of these measures, uh, the NRMSD, etc. Given World 3's low precision and the error margins one can expect in the empirical data, i.e. we're taking these proxies for the sum total of natural resources for the industrialized world, and we'll use this figure that we're getting, you know, of, of copper and this amount of lead, and we have this amount of whatever. <laughs> so anyway, take it for what it's worth, which is not much. But then she says, I chose uncertainty ranges of 20%, 50%, and 20% for the value difference, rate of change, and NRMSD, respectively. This recognizes that global data is unlikely to have higher than 10% accuracy due to measurement difficulties, and many valuables or variables or combinations of factors. Yeah. So anyway, look at those error, error bars you're getting, the uncertainty ranges 20%, 50%, 20%. long as it's within 50%, then it's it's probably accurate. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Anyway, she, that's then what she goes on to use. Um, talking about the data sources that she was using, again, garbage in, garbage out. Some variables required proxies because the variable in World 3 is not directly observable or quantifiable in the real world. <laughs> so admitting there are variables that go into this model that you can't measure, the <laughs> airy-fairiness factor. Well, let's, let's make that seven units of airy-fairiness. Um, I'm only slightly joking. So anyway, she does go on to list all of the different factors that were used, the population statistics and where they come from, fertility, mortality, food per capita, etc. And you can get a sense of how reliable or unreliable some of this data is. Um, for pollution, she says, World 3 assumes pollution to be globally distributed, persistent, and damaging to human health and agricultural production. I used CO2 concentrations and plastic production as proxies. So we are calculating this globally distributed, persistent, and damaging to human health and agricultural production, pollution, all of which are just assumed, 
Um, we're, we're proxying that with CO2 concentrations and plastic production. There you go. That's pollution, right? <laughs> like these, this is the level of data that's being plugged into these models. That's telling us the year that civilization is going to collapse. <laughs> and then when you press them on that, well, we didn't actually say the year. We're just saying around this point, a general dynamic trend, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, sure. That's the way it'll be reported, right? Um, again, go through it. Please, honestly, I'm saying go through this and read through it. Look at the accuracy measure table um, where the green is, with, is within the actual acceptable uncertainty ranges that she was listing there. The red figures are outside of those uncertainty ranges by which she is assuming, well, the green ones, well, they're in within uncertainty, so they're, they're likely accurate. But well, there's quite a lot of red on here. I don't know if you noticed that. A lot of red, a lot of things that are uh, 140% off. Etc. So, um, pretty incredible. Lays it out as a um, as a, 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 li a line graph or a, a chart here. Um, and then you get to, for example, the count per scenario of closest agreement with empirical data. So this is how many different variables seem to line up in the various scenario runs. And it's interesting to me that BAU2, business as usual too, remember the one where they invented, they had to say, well, actually, okay, let's double the amount of natural resources we're starting with because we got it so wrong for BAU. BAU2 comes in as the second closest alignment with data in this completely jerry-rigged, completely nonsensical model as I'm going at length to show here. But anyway, actually the closest fit with the most... Uh, uh, counts of closest alignment with data is CT. Remember the, the controlled technology uh, scenario where technological developments actually produce much more than we ever could have imagined under even the most amazing circumstances in terms of our access to resources and our ability to uh, conserve them, etc. So actually, really, the closest fit is the one where technology comes along and actually does make significant help, but she concentrates on BAU2, business as usual, and that's the one that gets cited in all of the reports about this, business as usual, business, of course it sounds, oh, we're still on this business as usual, we haven't taken the actions necessary to stave off this global civilizational collapse that we know from this super accurate model that we were running with this total garbage data with these huge error bars is telling us 2040 and it's business as usual. So we're going to have to take super drastic action, guys. Anyway, so that's how she comes to the conclusion that um, BAU2 was the the one that we should be looking at. She says, unlike previous comparisons, this research did not reveal the business as usual scenario aligning with empirical data more closely than the others. She points out that CT, the control technology and business as usual aligned most closest to most often. Although she doesn't point out it was actually CT that's empirically the largest even within this jury-rigged game that we're playing. Uh, BAUT2 and, uh, and CT scenarios show a halt in growth within a decade or so from now. There you uh, QED. <laughs> Quote era demonstratum. Who needs to hear any more, right? Um, collapse. Uh, question mark. My findings are inconclusive as to whether sub subsequent declines can be expected to be so steep as to constitute collapse. The CT and BAU2 scenarios show distinctly different decline patterns, and one simply cannot simply take the midway between two scenarios produced by a complex, non-linear model like World 3. Yeah, exactly right. Tell that to the IPCC, huh? Um, the moderate declines in CT would align with a global forecast made in 2012 by Randers. Randers' forecast was made with a different model than World 3. <laughs> a completely different one, so it cannot be compared in most ways. Anyway, um, and then uh, it says that actually 
um, these four different scenarios were the main ones she was concentrating on here. Um, well, to some extent, for all scenarios, they all kind of fit the data as we have it, because in several cases, the scenarios don't significantly diverge until 2020. So <laughs> what does it mean to say that we're on track for this particular scenario where this particular thing will play out when you blithely admit at the end, in the conclusion, you admit, well, actually, they all look the same until 2020. So we really don't know. <laughs> it's a, it's a crapshoot. I mean, it, just, there's so much and I'm just scratching the surface here. Really, truly go read this study for yourself pick it apart. I'm interested to see what nuggets everyone out there can find in it. But that's just on just a surface reading, just at first glance. This is not the slam dunk. Oh my God, they've confirmed Club of Rome limits to growth that it is being portrayed at as in the scientifically illiterate media that hopes you are too stupid to actually go and read the study for yourself. And this is exactly why it sat there buried on the KPMG website for several months before it was dug up by Vice as, oh, here, look, let's reveal this to the world, this shocking, incredible new study, which, of course, then gets framed in the most hyperbolic way in order to generate the most headlines. And that's unfortunately how this entire game works, has always worked, will always continue to work. So just on that note of... Greenhouse gases. Remember that? Where Randers did his 2000 study and, and decided, oh yeah, we were way off about natural resources. Actually, we have them coming out the yin-yang way more than we thought. Let's double them. But what was all that about resources being our limits to growth? Ah, forget all that. Forget the last 30 years of our fear-mongering. Here's the next 30. It's greenhouse gases. It's pollution is going to be the reason that industrial society will collapse. You can't tell it in the data yet, but over the next decade or two, right? Um, what is that? So what is that fear-mongering based on? The fact that it's not just pollution in general. It's not just greenhouse gases. Of course, it comes back down to carbon dioxide, right? How do we, where do we generate that information from? That that's going to be this tipping point that changes everything. Oh, that's right. More computer models. <laughs> I have definitely talked about climate models before on the Corbett Report and done deep dives into specific models and how they function and talked to Judith Curry and others about computer modeling and how that's used and misused in the climate community. But speak of the devil, just within the past 24 hours of me recording this particular uh, edition of Questions for Corbett, we have yet more confirmation. You don't even have to try to find this. It's coming out the yin-yang. Uh, new confirmation that climate models overstate atmospheric warming, which notes that two new peer-reviewed papers from independent teams confirm that climate models overstate atmospheric warming, and the problem has gotten worse over time, not better, i.e. they are making more and more overstating the amount of warming. The papers are Mitchell et al. 2020, The Vertical Profile of Recent Tropical Temperature Trends, Persistent Model Biases in the Context of Internal Variability, uh, from Environmental Research Letters, and McKittrick and Christie 2020, Pervasive Warming Bias in CMIP6 Tropospheric Layers in Earth and Space Science. I'll just put that in as a little nugget that I think is quite apropos to what we're discussing here, isn't it, with regards to these models and how they are misused um, to mislead us into predetermined conclusions. What, how do I get off saying that? I mean, this was a, a super above-board scientist who probably has spent decades researching these th this particular field and has all sorts of particular credentials in this particular field in order to talk about it, right? R right? 
Well, this study is by Gaia Harrington. So who is Gaia Harrington? Well, as as was noted elliptically in that Vice.com article, she works for KPMG, which is one of the big four accounting firms. And what's her, what's her role and what does she do? Oh, okay. Well, Harrington apparently, according to the KPMG website, performed this research, this study, as an extension of her master's thesis at Harvard University in her capacity as an advisor to the Club of Rome. <laughs> yes, the person who's confirming the Club of Rome's fear-mongering is an advisor to the Club of Rome. <laughs> wow, color me shocked. Absolutely amazing. No, no conflict of interest here. I'm sure if she found that there were serious problems in this garbage model, she should she would have reported it above board, right? So anyway, if you really want to dig in, The Guardian recently profiled this Gaia Harrington in a report that was equally as fawning of this Club of Rome fear-mongering as ABC was back when this Club of Rome fear-mongering was getting kicked off a, f- a few decades ago, five decades ago, um, where it, they're talking to her and she says, from a research perspective, I felt a data check of a decades-old model against empirical observations would be an interesting exercise, said Harrington, a sustainability analyst at the accounting giant KPMG that recently described greenhouse gas emissions as a shared existential challenge. So KPMG, uh, uh, in addition to her role as advisor to a Club of Rome, she's also working for an accounting firm that is opining on the deadly dangers of greenhouse gas emissions derived, at least in part, from overstated climate models. But anyway, the MIT scientists said we need to act now, act now to achieve a smooth transition and avoid costs, Harrington told the Guardian this week. It's always, it always just boils down to that. You're business as usual, but we need to act now. What on earth does that mean? Oh, don't worry about the details. We'll work that out for you, peon. Uh, that didn't happen. We, you did. You guys didn't act hard enough. You're still flying around and trying to live your life. Ugh, disgusting. So we're seeing the impact of climate change. Oh, that's right. The weather gods are angry that you peons are scrambling around doing too much on this planet. Uh, since its publication, the limits to growth had sold upwards of 30 million copies. It was published just four years after Paul Ehrlich's population bomb that forewarned of an imminent population collapse. With MIT offering analysis and the other full of doom-laden predictions, both helped to fuel the era's environmental movements from Greenpeace to Earth First. Harrington, 39, says she undertook the update, available on the KPMG website and credited to its publisher, the Yale Journal of Industrial Ecology, independently out of Pure curiosity about data accuracy. Yes, that's right. This advisor to the Club of Rome who works for KPMG, she just, on her, you know, just on a hunch, just for for, for kicks and giggles, decided to just check this out just because she wanted to check the accuracy of the data. And her findings were bleak. Current data aligns with the 1970s analysis that showed economic growth could end at the end of the current decade, as in at the end of the 2020s, in time for 2030. Where have I heard that number before? And collapse comes about 10 years later in worst case scenarios. About 10 years later, 2040. So there you go. We've got the timeline. 10 years now, we're going to start seeing the declines over this decade, and then the collapse begins um, and comes about in the the following 10 years. So we've got a 20-year timeline here, guys, and it's the super serial science She's crunched the numbers so you don't have to. Just read The Guardian and other propaganda outlets. Record scratch. 
Oh, where have I heard these types of timelines before? Paul Ehrlich, Earth will be doomed by 1980, he said in 1970, with specific examples of things that absolutely 100% did not happen, but that doesn't matter to people who are going to promote a specific agenda. They will continue to hail him as one of the greatest scientists of our time. Or how about the 2011 prediction by that super awesome scientist Prince Charles? Just 96 months to save the world, says Prince Charles. Let me do the math on that one. Oh, I guess the world ended a few years ago, or at least our chances of saving it ended a few years ago. So uh, once again, kick back, everybody. It's done. Stick a fork in it. It's done. There's nothing you can do. Oh, well. Um, How about the world uh, warning from the UN. World has three years left to stop dangerous climate change, warns experts. In June of 2017, wait, that would mean June 2020? That was like a year ago. Again. Oh, well, we can't stop dangerous climate change. It's already done. Look, prediction after prediction. I could go on. In fact, I have in a video about that UN warning. I have laid out time and time again all of the predictions that have stunningly failed to come true. All these deadlines. It's going to happen in three years, guys. It's going to happen in 96 months. Very precise. I wonder if that's how accurate that that month is. Is it is it down to the month? The, the decimal point? How many decimal point accurate is that assessment, Prince Charles? Anyway... So as you can see, this is the type of 20-year timeline we're on now. Now you you can really start the clock, guys. The timing of Harrington's paper, as world economies grapple with the impact of the pandemic, is highly prescient, as governments largely look to return economies to business-as-usual growth, despite loud warnings that continuing Ew, icky, economic growth is incompatible with sustainability. Sorry, poor people of the world, you're going to have to stay poor, and anyone who has any modicum of wealth is going to have to get poor to save Mother Earth. Earlier this year, in a paper titled Beyond Growth, so keep in mind, this is totally independent analyst at an accounting firm who's totally some sustainability expert, apparently, is writing about Beyond Growth, which is about the limits to growth, of course, riffing on that. The analyst wrote plainly, amidst global slowdown and risks of depressed future growth potential from growth potential from climate change, social unrest, and geopolitical instability, to name a few, responsible leaders face the possibility that growth will be limited in the future, and only a fool keeps chasing an impossibility. All right, I'll leave it there. Uh, of course, I'll link up the, the the, the full interview. You can go read it. But I I don't know what else to say at this point other than Malthus in, Malthus out. And make no mistake, this is Malthus. Reheated, 200-year-old decaying corpse of Malthus that is being spoon-fed to the public and who continue to lap it up because they have been spoon-fed it their whole lives and cannot conceive that Malthus was wrong. So let's go back to the limits to growth to actually demonstrate this. If we go to the first conclusion in the sort of general summary, um, the executive summary of the limits to growth, it says, if the present growth trends in world population, industrialization, pollution, food production, and resource depletion continue unchanged, the limits to growth on this planet will be reached sometime within the next hundred years. The most pro- But it's totally not a prediction, guys. We're just looking at general trends. Will be reached within the next hundred years. The most probable result will be a rather sudden and uncontrollable, uncontrollable decline in both population and industrial capacity, i.e. back to the Stone Ages. Make the Stone Ages great again. That is what is 
the, the long-term plan as well as the forecast by this super scientific model. And make no mistake, population is listed first in their little diatribe, their world population, industrialization, pollution, food production, yada, yada. Pollution, uh, population is listed first because to the eugenicists of the Club of Rome and their ilk, that represents the root of the problem Exactly as JDR3, John D. Rockefeller III, described it back in, uh, you'll remember why Big Oil conquered the world on his little trip to the Indian subcontinent, taking a look at the crowds of teeming humanity and saying, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Do you remember that moment? Because that's ex exactly the problem from the elitist's point of view. So we can read, for example, from The New Threshold by the Club of Rome Executive Committee that was published in 1973, where they lay it out. Uh, part, they're discussing the problematique, which is the way they framed the idea that we're not just looking at a problem. We're looking at this interwoven, connected matrix web of problems that all feed into each other and create this massive problem. It's the problematique. And they identify, number five, the world population problems. Rapid increase in world population, especially in regions already ill-favored, appears to us to be at the center of gravity of the problematique, and we feel that the establishment of wise policies for the stabilization of population levels and the technical and educational measures which must accompany them are of top priority. We particularly welcome the activities of the United Nations in this field, which will culminate in a World Population Conference in 1974. Yes, we've gone on record time and time and time and time again to talk about that, well, we're going to have to reduce the world population. World population will have to go down. If we do a good job with vaccines and other interventions, we can get that number down. We can reduce the world population. Britain should be 30 million people. Over and over and over again, on the record statements, Ted Turner, well, we should have maybe 10% of the amount of people that we have on Earth right now. What are you going to do with that other 90%? Don't worry your heads about that. Little plebs, just go go about your lives. We'll take care of that. Your technocratic overlords in the United Nations. We will steward over it nicely. Does all of this sound familiar? Because it should. It should, if you have been paying attention for the last, oh, say, 220 years. Specifically, we can go back to Thomas Malthus. I've invoked his name several times as if you already know who Thomas Malthus is, and hopefully you do, certainly if you've looked at my work on the population problem over the years. But if not, we can we can delve right into the horse's mouth from an essay on the principle of population from 1798 in which Malthus wrote, yada, 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 assuming then my postulata is granted, I say that the power of population is indefinitely greater than the power in the earth to produce subsistence for man. Population, when unchecked, increases in a geometrical ratio. Subsistence increases only in an arithmetical ratio. A slight acquaintance with numbers will shew the immensity of the first power in comparison of the second. This natural inequality of the two powers of population and of production in the earth, and that great law of our nature which must constantly keep their effects equal, uh, form the great difficulty that to me appears insurmountable in the way to the perfectibility of society. All other arguments are of slight and subordinate consideration in comparison of this. I see no way by which man can escape from the weight of this law which pervades all animated nature. No fancied equality, no agrarian regulations in their utmost extent could remove the pressure of it even for a single century. And it appears, therefore, to be decisive against the possible existence of a society, all the numbers of which should live in ease, happiness, and comparative leisure, and feel no anxiety about providing the means of subsistence for themselves and families. 
Just one problem. Malthus was wrong 220 years ago, but he's also stunningly, incredibly wrong after 220 years of that ironclad law of nature. No way around it, folks. People, you can't improve society and certainly can't have masses of people living in relative wealth for any sustained period of time because it's, it's baked into the cake. Food increases arithmetically, population geometrically, exponentially. What can you do? Except, of course, for the fact that that's wrong. It's been wrong every single generation since Malthus originally wrote it. It is wrong today. In fact, it is increasingly, stunningly wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. If you don't know about that, I would suggest that you take a look into my archives for the voluminous, extensive, documented, detailed, scientific uh, reports that I have done on this in the past. Meet Paul Ehrlich, pseudoscience charlatan. The last word on overpopulation. This is what a demographic crunch looks like. The underpopulation crisis. But in case you need more data points along that trail, here's more that have arisen since the last time I spoke about this. We have this report, for example, just arose in the past couple of months. Long slide looms for world population with sweeping ramifications. More people in more countries may soon be searching for their own metaphors. Birth projections often shift based on how governments and families respond, but according to projections by an international team of scientists published last year in The Lancet, 183 countries and territories out of 195 will have fertility rate uh, below replacement level by 2100. Their model shows an especially sharp decline for China, with its population expected to fall from 1.41 billion now to almost, uh, to about 730 million in 2100. That's, that's 50%. If that happens, the population pyramid would essentially flip. Instead of a base of young workers supporting a narrower band of retirees, China would have as many 85-year-olds as 18-year-olds. And as we saw recently, if you feel that the biggest threat to humanity is the growing human population... What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Then don't worry, because weirdly enough, there's another prediction that lines up with that 2040s time frame that's making the news right now, as you'll recall from my recent episode 406 of the podcast on Trust the Science... Shanna Swan, most couples may have to use assisted reproduction by 2045. That's right, the chemical stew that we are bathing in on a daily basis now is so drastically uh, reducing the, uh, the mobility, the motility, the, the availability of sperm production in humans, generally speaking, but especially in Western males, that by 2045, most couples are going to need assisted re assistance to reproduce. You're not going to do it naturally. You're going to need technological means. Most couples. Think about that and what that means for this population crisis. It's almost as if the people who have been stewarding over the, the mega unbelievable riches and resources of the, the oil barons, let alone everyone else, that set up the foundations back in the early 20th century, that have been railing for over a century now about the problem of population and been talking about ways, chemical and otherwise, to reduce this problem. It's almost like they may have hit on something. Oh, but that's, that's conspiracy theory. So yes, long story short, very soon we are going to have the exact opposite of the overpopulation crisis that you have been 
taught to believe. Your entire life you have been bathed in this propaganda telling you, warning you, oh, too many people, too many people, too many people. We're heading into the exact opposite. For almost every country on the planet, you will not even have fertility at replacement levels by 2100. You're going to see significant de declines in population, in country after country. Half of the Chinese population uh, in Japan, it's the, the outlook is even bleaker. We've already started contracting in terms of our population here. So, yeah, there are some problems with the overpopulation narrative. It's time to familiarize yourself with the de demographic crunch and the underpopulation crisis. But here's the thing about this particular topic. It is so emotionally charged. It is so dependent on false beliefs that have been hammered into you by irrational propaganda for so long that no amount of rational argumentation, no amount of data, no amount of showing that even the UN is saying, look, no, look, their, their population, their global population level levels out in 2050 and starts declining. No amount of showing people this information is going to change the fundamental mindset that's been drilled into them, that there's an overpopulation problem. Oh, population, oh, we're all gonna, we're all gonna die because there's too many of us. So after 50 years of non-stop propaganda about the growing human population, people literally can't even comprehend the fact that we are heading towards drastic and potentially irreversible population decline because, as I say, no amount of data and rational argumentation is going to change people's emotional connection with this issue. So let me try a different approach. As you'll note, the entire first 30 years of fear-mongering about the limits to growth from the inception of that report onwards was the limit to growth was natural resources, and we were running out of resources. That's, I think, still one of the things that people think of in regards to the population problem. There's too many of us, and we uh, look, we only have a certain amount of resources, and they're dwindling all the time. We're running out. We're running out of everything. Asterisk, oh yeah, when we actually looked in the year 2000, it turns out we were way, way, way short. And so let's double the amount of natural resources for our future test runs of the model, right guys? But let's sweep that to the side. So this is, I think, the level at which people intuitively believe the population propaganda. Well, I mean, whatever, regardless of the exact numbers, there's billions more of us now than there were decades ago. So we must be running out of resources, right? And we must, I mean, it's just a law, ironclad law of the universe. It makes such intuitive sense. As the human population expands, we have fewer and fewer resources, don't we? Surely we're running out of stuff, right? Wrong. The um, newspaper stories you customarily read would tell you that we should be worrying about running out of natural resources, copper, wheat, um, what have you. But the history of the past 200 years, in fact, the whole history of humanity, has shown us the extraordinary event, contrary to all common sense, that the more that we use of natural resources, the more we have of them. That is, rather than natural resources becoming more scarce as we use them, they have been becoming more available. When I say more available, I mean that when we look at natural resources with the measure that we as economists use, and the measure that's important to us as consumers, that is, how much do we have to pay to get these resources? we see that the price of natural resources has been going down rather than up 
throughout all of human history. Let's take an example. If you want a, a ton of copper delivered on your front lawn, it would only cost you about one-twentieth as much of the most valuable thing you have, which is your human time, to earn enough to buy a ton of copper as it did 200 years ago. And it will only take you about one-two-thousandth as much of your time now to earn enough to buy a ton of copper as it would have 4,000 years ago. And it's the same story with every single natural resource. It's the same with iron. It's the same with aluminum. It's the same, you name it, it's the same story that all of the natural resources, and that includes all the foods, wheat and corn and rice, all of them have been becoming more available rather than more scarce, contrary to all common sense, to all standard Malthusian thinking. So that what you're saying is that more seems to be better. More people <laughs> and more use of natural resources somehow does the reverse of what our common sense tells us. That's exactly right. The more we use, the more we have. And perhaps we should take a minute to explain the process by which this occurs. When we use more of something, we have more people, when our income goes up so that we can buy more, there is, for a while, a shortage, either a real shortage or an expected shortage. We use more and the price goes up. But the process doesn't end here, and that's what's fundamental. In response to these shortages, some people look at the situation and say, aha, here's opportunity. The price is going up. If I can find some way to get my hands on some, I can sell some and make some money on it. So people begin to uh, look around at this shortage and say, how can I find some more copper? Or how can I use the old copper mines to refine, to get the copper out more cheaply? Or how can I refine it more cheaply? Or even more important in the history of people, how can we find something to replace the copper with. So people look. Some succeed and some fail. And the people who succeed sooner or later in finding ways to supply our need for this copper in response to the higher price find ways to do it. And the exciting part of it is that at the end point of this process, after people find new ways to supply our need for copper, we are left better off than if the problem had never arisen in the first place. That's what's extraordinary. Yes, that we're left better off than if the problem had never arisen. And what this means is that we need our problems. In some fundamental way, we need bigger and better problems. That's not to say we should run out and create any problems, because we managed to create problems pretty well. But we do need our problems. If problems didn't arise, if population hadn't grown so that people ran short of food, if we still had 10 million people on Earth as we had uh, perhaps 10,000 years ago, and people were still living uh, an average of 30 years or less at birth, we wouldn't have had this fancy lunch that you and I um, 
had today, but instead we've been out chasing rabbits and digging roots. Not worried about a shortage of rabbits or roots, but that's the kind of lunch we would have had. That, as I hope you know, was Julian L. Simon, the economist, who was the other half of the bet of the century against Paul Ehrlich, population control doomsayer, that you will remember, hopefully, from interview 1107 on the Corporate Report website, where I talked about the bet of the century and what was at stake and what that meant and what it showed. An incredibly important story that's, for some reason, oddly unreported or underreported among the doomsayer crowd, and when it is reported, it is invariably poo-pooed, dismissed, explained away. That's just some freak occurrence. Um, It was anything of the sort, anything but. Um, So I hope you will check into Interview 1107 if you're unfamiliar with that or with Julian Simon generally. But yes, long story short, here is the thing. When you boil it down, our our supplies of natural resources are not finite in any economic sense. Let me repeat that. Our supplies of natural resources are not finite in any economic sense. I know that is difficult to understand. I get it. It is absolutely counterintuitive. It doesn't make any sense. How can it possibly be that the more we use of something, the more we end up having of it? What's going on? How could that be? That's not right. Well, actually, unfortunately, as with so many other things, this in particular is a concept that no little soundbite or little trite two-minute treatment that I can give it in an overview like this will do justice to. But we can try. (laughs) So let's turn to Julian Simon's tome, Hefty Tome, The Ultimate Resource, which was updated in the 1990s as The Ultimate Resource 2. But let's Let's go to the original, The Ultimate Resource, for this section from Chapter 2, where he talks about the difference between technological forecasts based on technological estimates of a natural resource supply versus economic scarcity and what that actually means. So in the section, The Nature of Technological Forecasts, Explaining the Paradox, Simon writes, The historical fact which he outlines in previous sections and previous chapters, the historical fact that natural resource costs have fallen, as measured by all reasonable concepts of cost, flies directly in the face of the notion that diminishing returns must raise costs and increase scarcity. This paradox cries out for explanation, but the explanation is quite counterintuitive. It contradicts common sense, at least until one has thought the matter through after which this way of thinking constitutes obvious common sense. The approach of the technological writers is as follows. They estimate quantities and qualities of resources in the earth, assess the present methods of extraction, and predict what methods of extraction will be used in the future. With those estimates, they then calculate the amounts of resources that will be available in future years at various costs of extraction, in the better forecast, or just at the present cost, in the less thoughtful forecast. At the root of the technological view of natural resources is the assumption that a certain quantity of a given mineral exists in the earth, and that one can, at least in principle, answer the question, how much, say, copper is there? But the question of how much of a resource is really in the earth is like the question, is there a sound in the forest when a tree falls but no one is nearby to hear it? The question, as stated, opens a Pandora's box of semantic confusion, as do many sentence statements that contain the word is. Let us examine the matter. 
what do we mean by a sound? A physical disturbance? If so, we can put a sound meter in the forest. But what about a resource? We have no comparable instrument to measure the quantity of iron or oil in the earth, and even if we did, we probably would not be able to agree on just what ought to be measured. For example, on whether the copper salts dissolved in the sea should be included in the measurement of copper. All right, it goes on and on from there. I, if I start reading this, I'm going to read the entire book to you, and I'm afraid we do not have ch time for that today. Um, so I will, I will pose this as a challenge that I sincerely hope that people who are genuinely interested in this will take up. Just read the first chapter of The Ultimate Resource on resource scarcity. And if it doesn't at least pique your interest, at least doesn't present a thoughtful and different way of looking at the problem of what resources are and how we measure them and how we can forecast them. If it doesn't, then sure, abandon it. Go back to common sense thinking. I know what's what. But if that does at least begin to intrigue you, I really recommend you continue reading on because there is a lot of very thoughtful things to be said on this subject. And it's been encapsulated many different ways by many different writers. So let's go back to a 1985 article from... Uh, John K. Williams that's posted up currently on fee.org um, that was writing around these concepts and that concept of the Pandora's box that uh, Simons was referencing there. Um, there's, uh, again, there's, this is a different way of looking at it or a different way of framing it. Uh, in this article, Pandora, Pandora and Hope, uh, the author writes, now, if a resource involves a hidden reference to human desires and human technology, attempts to measure a resource face problems. Consider oil. Available reserves of oil were minimal until an American dug the first oil well in 1859. Inasmuch as it is technologically possible to transform tar sand and shale rock to oil, should the actually or possibly obtainable reserves of tar sand and shale rock be included in an attempt to calculate actually or possibly obtainable reserves of oil? Soybeans similarly can be turned into oil. Do they count? Millennia ago, the Iberians declared that the Rio Tinto mines in Spain were exhausted. They could extract no more copper, silver, or gold from them. The superior technological skills of the Romans witnessed the reopening of these mines and a great deal of successful mining. When their technological skills had gone as far as they could, the mines yet again were perceived as exhausted. The process was repeated again and again. The discoveries of the leaching process, the roasting process, and the flotation process at different times transformed the exhausted Rio Tinto mines into anything but exhausted mines. Since in this obvious sense, attempts to specify available resources must refer to available technologies, should not technologies transforming one substance into another similarly be referred to? More subtly, a resource becomes less scarce when a new way to perform a given task is discovered. Vast quantities of copper were once required if the inhabitants of one country were to speak to inhabitants of another country, thousands of miles of cable being needed if such were to be done. Space satellites now serve for this purpose. Economically speaking, copper today is less scarce than it was two, de two decades ago. Simply, in any humanly significant sense, resources are no more limited than is what Julian L. Simon calls humanity's ultimate resource, the human imagination. The human imagination. Perhaps one should add that resources are similar similarly no more limited than is people's liberty to exercise their imaginations. 
All right. Uh, again, I hope you're at least starting to get the glimmer of the idea here, which, oh, by the way, doesn't that perfectly line up with what we just saw in the Harrington study there, where she was talking about Randall back in 2000, who, looking at the data, realized, oh, actually, we have way more resources than we counted in 1972. If we count them in the year 2000, we have, well, I don't know, let's double it. Let's say there's double the amount of resources. And how did that happen? Why did that happen? Oh, maybe there's an explanation for that. And maybe that could process could be applied again today in 2021. And maybe we'd have to revise those 2000 estimates for the business as usual two scenario that Harrington takes at face value. And may, maybe there's a reason that it was so off. And maybe we should look into that. And maybe that's the reason that that CT, the control technology scenario, actually lined up better than the business as usual scenario, as we saw again from Harrington's own data, that some technological changes will come along to vastly increase available resources beyond even our most wildest estimates. Maybe that's why that's lining up. No, that's silly. What we have is a fixed bake, baked pie. Uh, th th all we have is that pie, and every new mouth is just one more mouth that has to feed from that pie. But the pie is growing, and the pie is bigger today than it was 20 years ago, let alone 30 years ago, let alone 50 years ago, let alone 100 years ago, let alone 1,000. Oh, don't think about that. Don't think about that. No, it's a fixed pie. So there is an incredibly important point being made here again. I will just once again lay it out for you. Please take the challenge to read that first chapter of The Ultimate Resource and continue reading. Read the rest of it. Read Ultimate Resource 2 to really get an understanding of what's being said here. But I certainly don't want to just limit this to, oh, it was all is only Julian Simon. He's the only person who ever made this argument. He's the only person who ever... No, he was a great articulator of this idea. He was a popularizer. People know it largely because of Julian Simon, but he's not the only one arguing it. And for anyone who wants to play that game where, oh, I'll go and I'll, I'll look up his biography. He studied at the University of Chicago. Oh, I knew it. He's just a, he's just a cigar-chomping capitalist swine who's just trying to stick up for his big business buddies so they can continue to rape the earth, right? He's a right-winger or whatever whatever you want to say to try to dismiss the ideas that he is laying out there in voluminous, documented, demonstrable detail that every single generation in all of recorded human history, the amount of available natural resources has expanded, not contracted. <laughs> Explain that, Malthus. But anyway, um, for anyone who wants to dismiss it because of those and, and ad hominem attack the source of the information rather than look at the information itself, fine then. I'll provide you something from the other side of this argument. Someone who's very much not aligned with the cigar-chomping capitalists. In this case, Richard Werner, who people might know from Princes of the Yen. He was the one who came up with the idea for quantitative easing and he says they misapplied it. But I just want to show that it doesn't matter what end of whatever spectrum you want to apply you go to. There are people who are saying the same thing. Now, the stakeholder capitalism also sounds a lot like looking out for society as well as the environment. And there has been an emphasis on sustainability and climate change. How does this tie into the Great Reset? Um, well, that's actually an important question. Um, I mean, so again, we have to distinguish between what's a narrative and what stories are being told and the, the, the facts. Uh, what we have been told recently, the narrative seems to be um, economic growth is bad. Um, therefore, we should have less growth. They coined this term degrowth. We need to get rid of growth, which, of course, will happen as, as banks get killed. 
when central bank digital currency gets rolled out and the banking system disappears, there will be no more economic growth. <laughs> so then they say, oh, that's good for the environment. Um, and um, and so that's that's the narrative. But what's the reality? What are the facts on this? Well, the fact is economic growth is not necessarily bad for the environment. There's no evidence for that whatsoever. What is bad for the environment is policies and activities that hurt the environment, such as pollution. I think we all agree if you have pollution of the environment of rivers and so on, that's bad for the environment. Well, you can have this pollution whether you've got zero growth or 10% growth, right? So clearly it's not the growth that's the problem. It is the pollution activity that's the problem. So you see how very cleverly there's a, there's a you know, they're, they're spinning this and they're distracting your attention away from what really hurts the environment. Well, let's not talk about that. Oh, it's economic growth that's the problem. Well, we're going to have zero growth, then everything will be fine. Well, that's absolutely not true. Where does this come from? Now, what are the facts about economic growth and the environment? The facts are, this is perhaps slightly uh, surprising or shocking, there is no economic growth. Growth doesn't exist. If you ask a physicist, it becomes very clear. We've got the laws of thermodynamics. Energy is a closed system. You can only transform it, but you know you can't make it or make it disappear. Um, we have entropy. Uh, so there's no, there's no growth. Growth doesn't exist. But hang on, economists talk about growth. So what is the economic growth? Economic growth is a statistical illusion. It's a statistical illusion that was created by taking certain statistics and putting them together to create GDP, which is an artificial concept. And, and well, it's probably, we don't have time to go into this, why it was created this way, which is an interesting story, but it was created in a certain way by picking and choosing certain activities and putting it together and then that's GDP, that's economic growth. You know, when GDP is higher this year than last year, that's our growth. So it's entirely a statistically artificially created concept. And in reality, there's no economic growth. And that proves also that growth can't hurt the environment because there is no growth in terms of physics and energy. Um, now, the good news, therefore, is we can have very high economic growth, 10% double-digit growth like China, Japan, Taiwan, Korea have done for decades. We can have that and be good on the environment, you know, have growth that is very green, environmentally very sustainable, and that doesn't hurt the environment. We can have that. It is possible. And so it's a false narrative to say that economic growth is always bad for the environment, and therefore we shouldn't have growth. But it reveals something about people who say this, that what they really want to do is kill growth and they're just coming up with an excuse which they try to pull the wool over people's eyes so they believe oh yes yeah growth is actually bad yeah we should have no growth and there seem to be people at work to engineer that scenario where we have no growth namely when you kill um small banks local banks community banks and you have a very concentrated banking system that's only a small number of big banks or you've got rid of the banking system entirely and there's only the central bank left you will have no more economic growth. Um, and so, well, I hope that that's not what policymakers are aiming at because that would not be good. And certainly we should all try to prevent such a scenario becoming true because it will create many problems. It's like the 20 year, um, you know, zero growth or depression we had in Japan. 
which um, causes a lot of hardship um, in the economy for people. Um, we don't really need that. I mean, there's no real justification for that. Is the emphasis on sustainability perhaps a globalist initiative to control the population? Well, I mean, population control is another interesting concept. And of course, it has been linked by some to the environmental damage that humans allegedly cause. You know, the narrative that's being told is that um, it's really the, um, um, you know, we, we, we don't want um, economic growth and we don't want people. But that's a very, um, very unhealthy thought process, I must say. I mean, it's, it's, um, it's, it's anti-human uh, thought process that the, the source of all the problems are humans. I think it's the other way around. And I told you at the beginning, uh, essentially, with economists, you just have to take the opposite of what they say. The solution is humans. Humans are the creative ones. They're the ones that come up with um, new ideas, new patterns, new inventions. Um, nobody else does. And so if we want more prosperity, we need more humans. Of course, we need to train them. The education system is very important. Uh, but that's how we get prosperity and how historically society is always uh, thrived is when we have more people and people are also educated. There's no evidence that, you know, having more people is bad for the planet, but it is a narrative that's been scarily out there for decades. There is a United Nations Population Fund, uh, which is a big international organization. And it seems that despite its name, the, the actual goal is to reduce the population of the world. Um, and one could say that certain policies that have been taken since March 2020 seem to be part of this agenda, um, and that is quite concerning. So it is certainly a topic we should look at um, in the future in, in great detail. Richard Werner, who I suggest you do look into his work in his writings and The Princes of the Yen, the documentary, for example, there's some interesting stuff in there. I certainly don't agree with him on everything, but I, I'm just going to prove the point. This is not a left-right thing. Do not try to put it in that context. Just because you see the, the effect of the human population on the planet differently than the doomsayers and the fearmongers does not mean you do not care about the Earth. Quite the contrary. It means you very, very much care and you are willing to look at the truth, like a Julian Simon or a Richard Werner or many other people who are trying to combat the demonstrable untruths that are being slung on people in the name of sending us back to the Stone Age, which, unfortunately, a lot of the population has been psyoped into actually desiring. Look, at the end, this is actually pretty simple. This is not about science, at least not the scientific method of actually coming up with hypotheses and testing them against data, etc. It's about science, i.e., the science worshippers, scientistic method of having pre-established conclusions, pre-established pre ideas of what actions you want the world to take, and then fitting your models and your data around it so that everything points in that direction. You see, it's because you didn't act that we have climate change, which is why we now have to do this, that, and the other. And that's, at least the pandemic has taught us the lesson that governments can act in times of crisis to shut down the world economy. Isn't it working out all so beautifully for the people 
who want this agenda to go forward. And who is that? Look, I'm not saying that all of the scientists in all of the various fields and statisticians and accountants and other people who are presuming to weigh in on this issue are all either morons, I don't think they are blithering idiots, um, and I don't think they are necessarily being deceitful, at least not consciously so. I think they are starting from incorrect assumptions and likely, although I'm not trying to psychologize, but likely motivated by what they feel to be the noble and genuine cause of saving the earth or saving the planet, whatever, but ending up in the incorrect places because they're starting from the wrong points, they're using the wrong methodology, they're coming to the wrong conclusions. So it's not the mid-level technical, techno, technocratic tech, uh, bureaucrats, the, the middle managers, the people who are crunching the numbers and are getting thrust in your face as this new scientist has confirmed this. Is she a scientist? No. Well, whatever. It's not those people who are really to, at the base to blame for this agenda. The question is, who is funding this agenda? Who has the resources to make sure that these organizations, these groups are able to then fund these research projects that then get promoted in the bought and controlled paid for media? Who Who is really doing this? Who has that kind of control? This is not a rhetorical question. It's one that you already know the answer to. What do you see as the biggest challenges in, in conservation? Yeah, the, the growing human population. Because if where we are, there's nothing else. The negative impact of population growth on all of our planetary ecosystems is becoming appallingly evident. Here we can see a chart that looks at the total world population over the last several hundred years. And at first glance, this is a bit scary. You already know the answer to this because I've shown you many, many, many times, but let's reiterate it and let's lay it out for the heart of thinking. The people with the immense, incredible resources and political leverage and power to to bring together and support the organizations like the Club of Rome to sponsor the scientists like the MIT researchers that produce the reports that say what they want them to say and then sponsor the media like ABC and Guardian and Vice and all of those controlled outlets that then trumpet those results and poo-poo anybody who says anything otherwise. Julian who? I've never heard of him. He hasn't been on the he hasn't been featured in a Vice ma magazine article, so he mustn't be important. Th those are the people who are running and funding this agenda. And at the end, this isn't about science. This isn't about an attempt to save the planet. It's demonstrably wrong. And they even come out and admit it. In the year 2000, they go, oh, you know, all that stuff we said about running out of resources? Yeah, turns out that doesn't wash. So um, it's about um, pollution. Yes. So now all economic industrial activity is to blame for this coming collapse that we're prophesying and bringing about with our actions to shut down the global economy, which is part of what is going to lead us into Agenda 2030 towards the collapse of civilization as we've known it in, as we've known it in 2040. That isn't some sort of prediction that's just coming from this straightforward data that's being fed into this model that knows everything. No, this is a 
This is what this is a game plan that is being worked toward, and they need the narrative in place so that people will accept it as it starts to happen. I am saying, do not accept this. Do not give in to the propaganda. Do not believe them when they say, "Oh, it's look, it's in the data. The computer told us it's going to happen." So, as you start to watch it happen, I guess you'll just sit back and go, "Well, I knew it." Ha ha ha. Let me get the popcorn. It should have started earlier, as a lot of the people in the comment section, the peanut gallery, uh, will say about this in the various mainstream media that I've, I've cited here. Um, we do not have a population problem, at least not an overpopulation problem. We do have an underpopulation problem. And the perceived scarcity of resources or the impending collapse of the world or industrial society or however the doomsayers want to frame it is caused by the people who are telling that you that you are to blame and you should feel guilty. You're the one. You didn't act hard enough. So it's all going to fall apart. So here's the real question. Why? Why would they do that? Why would they do that? What is the agenda? It's almost like everything that they do and promote is anti-human and anti-life. And if that is what is ultimately motivating them, then what is the way we can actually counteract that? Those are not rhetorical questions. Those are questions with answers. And in the coming days at the Corbett Report, I'm going to have a couple of other reports that I think are right along these lines and will answer those rhetorical questions. So I hope you'll stay tuned for that as we continue our exploration on this very important topic. But as I'm pretty sure you know by now, there's a lot of info to go through today. I always tell you to go to the show notes to start reading some of this for yourself. I will once again implore you to do that, especially for this episode, especially for people who find anything that I've said today to be challenging to their beliefs and to people who have that gnawing sense in the back of their mind. Maybe I have been propagandized my entire life by the very people I know are lying to me time and time and time and time and time again about everything of importance in my entire life. But not this time. They're not lying about this. No, I believe this. I, I would wholeheartedly invite people who are having that little bit of cognitive dissonance in their head to go and explore these resources and go through and actually start reading this for yourself and try to puzzle this out and see why things are trending in this direction and what we can actually do to counteract it. Very important stuff, but we're going to leave that exploration here for today. So to everyone who's written in with questions about this topic over the years, I hope this at least goes some way towards answering that. I'm sorry I couldn't be more concise, but this is one of the most important topics facing the human species, so you'll forgive me if I want to thoroughly document it and continue documenting it. As I say, stay tuned to CorbettReport.com. In the coming days, I will have more information about this very subject. I hope you'll be there with me to explore it. I am James Corbett of CorbettReport.com.